This episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my absolute pleasure to welcome to Unstoppable today. Yes, you can hear I'm a little bit excited. We have Sharon Pearson, the CEO of the Coaching Institute, Australia's most awarded and largest international life coaching school. Uh, Sharon is also an international best-selling author of Ultimate You, which she released in 2019, which became an international bestseller and number one on Amazon. Now, in 2019, not only did she launch the book Ultimate You, but I should point out that was actually Sharon's seventh book. Uh, and after launching the Ultimate You Quest program through the Coaching Institute, her influence has now expanded into 81 countries across the world. In 2010, she won the award at the Telstra Victorian Businesswoman's Awards, and she's Sharon's also won the People's Choice Award in 2012. And I can say the piece de resistance, Sharon and I have been friends now for golly gosh. I think, I was trying to work it out, is it like seven eight years now. It was uh, Traffic and Conversion. Wow. Traffic and Conversion, was it 2011? I can't remember. It's over 10 years now, Kerwin. Over 10 years now. And the best part was, uh, I know we'd been friends on Facebook for some time, and then we actually didn't meet in person for the yeah. first time until San Diego. And we saw each other, San Francisco or San Diego? It was, it was one of those. San Francisco across the room. It was across about 200 room. people in the room. And yeah. you yelled out, spoon at the top of your voice <laughs> and we ran together in slow-mo for the first ever hug that was amazing i think it was actually in a starbucks from memory it on was. break yeah <laughs> so sharon this is actually um I, i'm 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 really grateful to have you on the show not just because i already know you as a person but i also know your experience i know a little bit about your life story uh, but I also know that you are one of the most, if not the most legitimate coach in the country when it comes to um, not just understanding coaching and the coaching process, but more importantly, from the results that you get. So I'm super excited about where this is going to go. Uh, and uh, yeah. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. You ready to get into it? Yes. Well, my goal today, and I, when I interviewed Larry King, Larry King was um, uh, really interesting because he said, look, one of the things that I do, he says, I don't prepare for any of my interviews. He says, because I want to get to know the person on the other side of the table at the same time as the audience does. I want to have a level of curiosity. Now, I feel in this context, I feel like I know a little bit more about you already, but my goal today is to find out things about you that I don't actually know about, because okay. I think that there's probably a lot in there as well. But I am curious to know, your story is one that is long. Um, it has many twists. I'm really, and really turns. old. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have to say, you are looking fantastic for 34. You really, uh, you really do pull it together. But I'm curious to know from your perspective, like, where does your journey in life begin? Like, when you're telling your life story, where does it begin for you? It's pretty not that interesting up until about the age of 30 something, Kerwin. Up until then, it was. I didn't know there was a consciousness I could have about how I live. So I lived unconsciously. So all I can report from up to about 32, 33 is I didn't know what I didn't know. So I lived in automatic. As you know about this, I lived automatically. I lived in reactivity. Um, I didn't know there was a consciousness that could be attained and there was a presence I could bring to how I live. And then around about the age of 33 to 35, a number of events. I met a beautiful woman who became my dearest friend. There's something you didn't know. I, uh, <laughs> I began reading some different books and I uh, some Buddhism books. And I realized there was a consciousness to life that I could bring that I hadn't been aware of until then. 
And then at the age of 36, I had this massive epiphany. That's all I can describe it as when I realized I was still living in the shade of life. Does that expression make sense? I was living in Mm. shadows. I didn't know how to live in the light of my life. I felt like I was always in the wings of my life instead of on the stage of my life. Like everything was in preparation when I'm brave enough, when I'm present enough, when I'm confident enough, when I know enough, when I know the right people, then I'll be ready to go on to the Just stage. one more book. Just one more book. <laughs> Just one more training. <laughs> uh, no, for me, I didn't even know there were trainings you could go to at that stage. It really right. was. When I believe in myself enough, then I'll start reading a book. That's where I was at. So pre-30, like pre-36, like what did your life entail? What were you doing? Who, were, who was Sharon Pearson pre-30? <laughs> I was trying to be a fiction writer, so I am the most successful unpublished author there is. I've written, <laughs> I think it's... <laughs> <laughs> this is gold. I'm really successful at not publishing fiction books. I think I wrote six or seven full wow. novels. Wow. I, wrote, I produced a book every two years to never see the light of day. My number of rejections could have plastered my study at the time, and I would have had still had more piles of rejections. So clearly not where I was heading. And, but it suited me to do that because then I didn't have to embrace life. I could just observe life. There was a level of comfort in playing at that level that I didn't realize I was hooking into. And after all, it becomes a habit. Um, but it got really sad, Kieran. So I'd turn up to a party and people would say, have you got a book published yet? Well, I had 14 years of saying no to that. And yeah, that was wow. exhausting. But yeah. I did learn I am really, really determined. <laughs> And I'm not taking any credit for my determination. Um, well, you, you should. Know Sam, well, I'm a bit of the Sam Harris kind of philosophy on what's free will and what's not, in that I think I'm just really fortunate that I was born with a lot of guru in me. Mm. I can't say I've cultivated it. I've made the most of it for sure. But I turned up with a level of guru, even in the face of years, in, like over a decade of failing, I was still leaning into it. And so I think that's something I had in me that I brought to the fore. And so where did this come from? Because like, I find it almost impossible when I interview people to discover anyone who was just born with a natural state of grit or, or, or levels of grit. Oftentimes it can be developed in childhood. Sometimes it yeah. can be developed in early adolescence or in early adulthood. Where and what was it that developed this level of resilience for you to be able to successfully fail so consistently, but at a high level, you know, that's persistent because to fail consistently yeah. for 10 years like that, because like, on one, sa- one side, you might go, well, I failed. But on the other hand, it's like, well, you hang on, you, you, you created a lot. You worked yeah. very hard. You learned a lot of lessons at the same time. I did. So I think it came from, I got a lot of rewards, positive uh, affirmation when I was very young from doing well. I, I found it very easy and I can't take credit for being born with intelligence with the level I've got, but I found it very easy to use my intelligence to do well. That's where it came from. My intelligence got me easy rewards everywhere I went. No sporting prowess whatsoever can be detected in my genes. <laughs> <laughs> and I've nope. looked. Every sport I apply myself to, it's dreadful. But the determination using this has always got a lot of reward, a lot of positive affirmation, a lot of encouragement, a lot of language around that. So tapping into that just became right. a very natural state for me to be into. I don't need to aim to be like that. It's very natural to me now at this age. 
So you, you developed grit through the application of intellect yes, and academia. And so your yes. grit was really, and I guess you could say this is a, you know, an, an interesting form because it's a, a very pure form of psychological grit because it's all, you know, in, in so much so mind control, you know, getting yourself to learn. Yep. And pushing past the learning and moving it into application. Right. I really build that muscle. So I'm really fortunate at young age. If I learned it, I wanted to do something with it. I wanted right. to discuss it. I wanted to share it. I wanted to bring it to life. I wanted to play with it. I, that became innate, just very innate over enough years, Kerwin. Yeah. You do it enough times, it's no longer something you have to think about. It's just one of my traits now. And that set you up for that decade of resilience, that decade of persistence, that decade of... So as a side note, how do you put food on the table as an unpublished author? How do you survive in those environments? Oh, you marry a husband who's unbelievably supportive and <laughs> never, ever, <laughs> I love you, Sharon. And never, ever gave up on me. Every wow. time a book JP. got rejected, he'd say, okay, let's Next. go again. You've got this. I believe in you. I love your books. They, deter they deserve to be published. It's a beautiful story. This deserves to see the light of day. He still to this day says, I can't believe that book wasn't published. It was fantastic. Wow. You should pull it out. And that's still all these years later. So complete support team around me just never blinked, never blinked. And so do you remember the day that Providence shifted where you were like, okay, maybe I'm not going to be a writer. I need to fucking have a look at a few other avenues here. You know, I'm either going to move to, you know, 50 shades of erotic novels or I'm going to move to, to something else. So do you remember I that day? I did think about that. I did think about that. <laughs> well, you are a great linguist, so anything's possible. <laughs> <laughs> it was this moment and I was standing there and I was so low about my defeats because by now determination was looking like stupidity like for, for reals there does come a point when it is really hard to face the moment when you've got to give it up it's really tough because of the law of consistency and commitment mm. yeah we uh, the cognitive dissonance of facing that I'm not closing that gap there's the cognitive distance of who I picture I should be versus who I seem to be. There's a lot of pain in facing, I'm going to change direction, give up on 12 years of one direction. That's yeah. really hard. That's a lot of momentum to go against. And to give up on it, you know, people say, oh, you didn't give up. You just challenged into a new bullshit. I gave up on it and I moved mm. my intellect completely different direction. I haven't written a fiction book since. So I don't need anybody reframing me and comforting me. It was tough. I made the decision. This is a loss leader. I'm in my 30s now. I spent my 20s this way and some of my 30s. I'm not prepared to commit another. I'm not Stephen King. Mm. You know, he was on his 10th novel and his wife pulled the novel out of the fire and it became the biggest seller in the world. I knew it wasn't that. So that was really tough. And with it came, um, you talk about momentum, there came this screeching halt. Mm -hmm. This is a video, isn't it? Or am I just using my fist for nothing? No, it's yeah, no, it's video. Okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All they hear is the slapping sound, Sharon. <laughs> <laughs> so just this screeching halt. So I just had this chasm of nothing ahead of me. It was like looking at the Grand Canyon of my life. Is that I have no idea what to fill this with. And this is about 36, right? Yeah. About 36. Had coaching or, you know, anything kind of entered into your mind at I that point? I perfected failing. Right. Perfect. Perfect. I always say I've got the perfect backdrop to become a successful coach. I had succeeded at nothing. 
<laughs> and so you come to a screeching halt. You're 36 years of age. You're, you're obviously very blessed to have the support of JP. But was this a decision that came in increments or was this a decision that came with a big, it was like something big? Yeah. I stood there for an hour contemplating uh, if I tried anything, if I moved, like literally I was frozen with fear, Kuan. If I moved forward, I'd fail. If I moved backwards, it wouldn't count. If I moved to the right, I'd be judged. And I moved to the left, nobody had noticed. So why bother anyway? And it was just this tremendous feeling of dread. And I wanted to make it this sound so, I hear myself saying this like I'm describing someone else. I thought, I'll go make a cup of tea. The kitchen was 10 steps away. I couldn't find the courage to make the tea because if I moved to make the cup of tea, I had to face, I needed to do something after that. So as long as I stood frozen in fear in this one place I, and thought about making tea, I never had to deal with what came after I'd made the tea because I had no idea what that could be. And as I stood there, I realized two things that transformed my life. There are people who have had worse lives than I have by a mile and who built lives of transformation and of inspiration. They have a life of meaning. They face challenges. I'm not saying they don't, but they have crafted their lives in such a way that they are, they're on the stage of their own lives as you're meant to be. And the second thing that came to me was they're doing it. How do they do it? And then I made the tea because I came to this moment of realization. I must spend the next 30, I've spent 37 years proving to myself how not to love my life. I've got to now dedicate the next 37 years figuring out how to love every aspect of my experience. Mm. So I made the tea with the resolution. I will spend the rest of my life answering the question, how do you build a life of beauty and meaning? So during those, those 12 years of writing, had yeah. you got it to the point where you were, um, you know, there's this great saying that one of my, um, one of my uh, personal training clients says, this is don't punish, uh, don't punish the body that you hate, create the body that you love. And during that phase of those 12 years, were you getting to a point where you were punishing yourself, you know, in the face of that, um, that perceived failure in order to, you know, I never saw create? it as perceived failure at the time. It was only failure when I stopped. And right. again, I don't, a lot of people come up to me and say, it's not failure. It's like, let it be what I want it to be. I'm all good. I love failure. Why do people <laughs> have to do that shit? It. Come on. It's not failure, it's feedback. Actually, it was. You know, it was a pretty fucking, it's, yeah. it was a big failure. I'm okay yeah. with that. Um, did I punish myself? I, because you talk about creating a life that you love yeah, and yeah, stepping yeah. into I, a life of beauty. So I was assuming there may have been some, some darkness during that period. It some, was all darkness because yeah. I was living in reactivity. You know what I mean by that term? Yeah. Your audience understands that term. Well, so you I want to, you explain it from your perspective. Yeah. So to me, you can live in a life of reactivity and compulsiveness or in a life of conscious choices. And compul compulsivity or reactivity is something happens, the stimulus and the response, there's no gap. The stimulus happens, I react. The stimulus happens, I react. Conscious is stimulus, bring conscious awareness that right now you feel hooked, you feel triggered, you feel stimulated. You feel compulsed to shut it down, defend it, run away from it, blame it, judge it, get angry at it. Pause and slow down. Own that feeling. Own what's coming up. Let it go through you. Let it go. And then only consciously respond 
with something that will bring grace and love and meaning to this stimulus, or you don't respond. So it's slowing everything down and expanding that gap between stimulus and response to such an extent that this response is created and cultivated. And it's not just stimulus response, stimulus response, stimulus response, which is how I was living. I think there's a lot of people that can probably relate to what you're saying right now, especially probably a lot of parents and entrepreneurs. And I'm going to assume at the age of 36, when you had this awareness, it wasn't just a button. And then all of a sudden you lived very consciously and non-reactively. How did you even get to a point where you had that awareness that you were reactive and what were some of the things that you did that you cultivated into your life to breed a higher level of awareness or was it something that happened organically over time? It's been, it's been cultivated too. And it's really been, I've had to think about it because I had so little understanding or awareness of what it meant to live consciously. And, and I'm sure you can appreciate this every year, what I thought was consciousness there's another level. Mm. There's another level. Every single day, I think I'm there. It's like, no, you're maybe 1% in. On an arrogant day, you're 4% in. And on a ridiculously big-headed day, I'm 7% in. But the, the, the range of what consciousness means must keep mm. ever expanding. Like a, you drop a pebble, it's barely begun when you drop the pebble hit. So the pebble hit, I had that realization since then, I'm living the ripples, one ripple at a time. So in the beginning, it was notice my self-talk. So I began with noticing that my mind ruled me and my mind did not work for me. It worked against me. So my mind was my saboteur. My thinking was not my friend. If my mind was my best friend, I had crappy friends. I was hanging out with some really poor, poor choices of friends. So my first year was about cultivating kind of thoughts. I don't know if this is too much detail. I literally Never. didn't know how to have a kind thought. Wow. I can remember one night laying in bed. So I used to do compulsive thinking. So there's compulsivity, there's being compulsive, which is obsessing about a thought and just having it go and go and go and just no matter what. It's, it's like this. Someone says something to you uh, that triggers you or what if you I, I really don't like the word triggers but you feel a reactivity coming up in you the compulsion to act on that trigger on that reactivity is the compulsion to pause between the feeling and the compulsion start with two seconds then 20 seconds then two minutes then 20 minutes then two days then two weeks and then let go the compulsion completely so in the beginning i couldn't go two seconds because my mind would be would hijack me immediately and start running into compulsive thoughts. The worst case scenario, catastrophizing, overgeneralizing, nitpicking, finding flaw, looking for ways to re reject the message. It, all of these were my, com my compulsive, my compulsions. So beginning to recognize that they were what was consuming most of my day became my first role for me. That's reclaiming me. There was one night I was laying in bed. I went two hours on compulsive thinking before I realized I had done two hours of compulsive wow. thinking. It took me two hours to wake up, become conscious and realize what I'd done till two o'clock in the morning. Is it, is it fair to say that this could have been something longer than two hours? Is this something that had been going on for more like those like decades? Like, was this something that? Yes. Yeah. But in moments, so that moments, go to yeah. bed to go to sleep. Yeah. 
and I began a compulsive thought that lasted two hours. <laughs> yeah. But that's a big that's now. a big thing to say. And I think a lot of people could probably relate to that if they started to bring a level of awareness to their thoughts. They're like, fuck, you know, I actually don't have that many positive thoughts. You know, I don't really you know how to self-care myself within my own mind. And, you know, you look at Masuramoto, and I'm not sure what your relationship is with his science, but, you know, Masuramoto talks about the messages in water and how language affects the molecules in water and how, you know, our body is essentially 60 to 80% water. And the way that we talk ourselves has such a detrimental impact on our health at a level of DNA, our, you know, a level of molecular and cellular. So I'm curious, did this level of thinking for this period of time, did it actually have any implications on your health? Did it affect you? Yeah, it did. So I, uh, I went to a doctor's once because I had a couple of, this is what truly changed my life. I was starting to get the health repercussions quite rightly. I walked out of that doctor's surgery with six prescriptions, all to manage symptoms. None have moved me to resolution or healing. This is not medical advice, Kerwin, what I'm about to say. <laughs> disclaimer it is, it is no this is my disclaimer this is not medical advice this is my personal choice for me i walked from the doctor's surgery towards the chemist there was a rubbish bin in between the two i chucked them all in the rubbish bin went home and sat and thought about how much of this was in, within my control and influence mm. so not shockingly depression digestive issues headaches none of this is shocking a number of other issues. So instead of going for the suppression, which was my specialty at that point, <laughs> suppressing the problem, face it, again, there's another level of consciousness. So I began. This and this is all around the same age, around 36? Exactly then. Yeah, same wow. year I began exercising, very typically changed my diet. I became vegan at that stage. I stripped out every piece of junk from the whole house. Uh, I began literally, Kerwin, I would open a Buddhist prayer book or a Buddhist book and I would write one paragraph of kind thoughts out by hand because mm. I didn't know how to have a kind thought. Oh, and when beautiful. my compulsivity would start, and if I noticed it, if I was powerful and present enough to notice it, okay, I need to replace this with something kind. Mm. Blank, pick out my bit pick of paper. And I would read the kind paragraph. Oh, I love that. And every day I wrote a new kind paragraph to replace the compulsion. Every day. So the compulsion would be there. It would take over for two minutes to two hours. But when I finally woke up, what's my paragraph? Because I didn't know how to do that for me. Wow. That's profound. I really like that. So what happens next? I'm curious to know this little segue moment from you know the <clears throat> the surrender of 12 years of dedication and life the holding pattern of self-awareness uh, and health at what point did the idea of coaching or or what's the coaching journey how did you reach the point where you're like you know what <laughs> yeah you know, maybe i'm gonna become a fucking coach yeah why not <laughs> why not oh, <laughs> just what the world needs another life coach let's do that and let's do let's be a life coach when i'm not even capable of helping myself i think that'd be perfect i should totally do that but so, that's so uh, funny just on that there are so many stories and i can r relate my own here where you know most of what i teach now happen is is happening as a result of me trying to heal myself 
Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it, it. Seems, it seems to be the way of so many great teachers. Yeah. So thank you. So I literally did it because of that. I became a coach not to help anyone else, but to save myself. Mm. Yeah, I could have I like hired that. a coach and learned the skill um, being coached on to make the change, or I could become a coach and go to the source of the well and learn how to find my own water. So instead of being given a glass of water, I went and built my own well. And so I learned how to accelerate this to work for me. So I learned about how fear and compulsivity can take over. I learned the skills of, which was literally what I'd been doing, Kerwin replacing the compulsive thoughts with thoughts that serve and thoughts that are filled with grace and thoughts that are filled with compassion and have a sense of support for myself until that became the automatic rather than the compulsive thoughts. Then it became learning the skills of uh, overcoming the fact that my mind thinks everything should be fearful to me, recognizing it's a liar that everything in my imagination won't necessarily happen. Every bad thing that it can forecast, I've had a thousand bad lives in my head, Kerwin, in one day. <laughs> Not one of them happened. <laughs> yeah, it's so Not true. one of them came true, but I've lived mm. a thousand bad lives in one day with what my mind could do. So I was recognizing my mind will just keep creating scenarios to reduce the risk of what it takes to stretch myself. And then in each of those moments, if I could just stretch myself this much, the fear voice doesn't get too loud. Then the next time it's this much. And until it became, that became the norm. Again, it was just building that mental muscle, the emotional muscle. I can be in the safe of, uns- I can be safe in a space of uncertainty. Mm. I can be safe in a space of, I don't know if this will work out. Let's up the ante. I can be safe in the space of, this could be a train wreck. I can be safe in the space of, it could train wreck and I will never solve it. That's the ultimate goal in business success. So in the beginning, it was just be safe in a space of ambiguity and uncertainty. If you can master that, you're going to master your own mind. So were you self-coaching long before you knew what coaching was? And is your form of self-coaching? Okay. Six months. And how did coaching get on your radar? A friend of mine said you should be a life coach. Right. If you want to learn all those skills then that's the place to get it. And I joined a program that day. And so six months, then you signed up and like, I'm going to assume like most other coaches, when you, when you got into training, your first training was NLP. Is that right? No, first training was a basic coaching program. It was a basic $5,000 certificate for life coaching. Okay. But that was it, Kerwin. Finally, I was learning how to fill this with the stuff that was going to help me feel okay about myself. Yeah. I could feel okay in my own skin where I didn't have to feel anxious all the time and worried about the next uncertain thing that was going to happen. And it also gave me a community of people who were willing to challenge their thinking rather than people who stayed in reactivity or in automatic thinking. So to me, it was a wonderful oasis after years of desert. It was just this beautiful realization it didn't have to be how it had been and that was it for me then it was tony robbins chris howard and nlp it was every training in uh, hypnosis ericksonian hypnosis it was everything Kerwin. i did all of it in the next two years so every cent i made from coaching and i'll talk about that segue went into investing in this for the first two years I only invested in getting this working for me because this became obviously my greatest asset. 
So I just kept investing in this. It was never to spend money on junk ever. Just my first year, I made $25,000. I invested 100% of it in my education for the next year. Wow. And so at what point did you realize there was a, a, a bigger opportunity here outside of just being a coach? So if anybody's thinking, why on earth would you coach anybody? You sound like you were such a loser. Let me just close that gap. Sure. <laughs> just, yeah. I missed that loop. Sorry. Yeah, I just <laughs> want to close that loop. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see that one. <laughs> so uh, I, part of my program, I needed to coach pro bono. And my very first client, it transformed her life because I asked her one question. I asked her, how do you reconcile spirituality with experiencing abundance in the material world? Reconcile those two ideas. And that was it. She, her whole life just transformed with that one question. Mm. And that became a recommendation. And the next client insisted on paying me. That became a recommendation. The next client insisted on paying me. I worked off referrals from that one pro bono client for two years. Wow. Until my entire business was referral clients. I had a waiting list of 30 clients, fully paid up, waiting to just come in next. And the reason I was able to do that, it's all the work I did in the beginning of moving into more consciousness. Mm -hmm. But it was also I trusted the systems, Kerwin. I didn't trust myself enough to think I knew how to coach someone, but I could trust what I was learning and utilize mm. that. Mm, so my, this. my, my beautiful ability from childhood of, I learned something and merely want to put it out there. That was everything Perfect. I'd ever done was in training for this moment. I'd rehearsed for all these years to learn something and immediately share it with passion. I, you look up coaching and it's got my picture because literally that's what I'm built for. So I'd go into a coaching session and I would just bring what I'd learned. Coaching isn't giving advice. Coaching is helping someone make own transform transformational choices based on their level of awareness, their level of consciousness, and you just shine a guiding light so their consciousness gets more expanded, so their views become less rigid, so the edges can soften a little bit. So what they filter in is expanded and a little transformed. That's what a coach is. It's not helping them get from here to here. Let's see if we can help you hit your goals. It's nothing as superficial as that. It's a process of revelation. And so all of what I learned from everybody whose shoulders I stand upon today with so much gratitude, I just brought into every session. So their scope of their perspective, their view, their horizon line lifted a little bit. So what they thought they were here for just shifted an inch or two. That's what I did. And so I just trusted the system, trusted the system until it became who I am. And that mm. took two years. Wow. That's profound. And I guess now I want to kind of maybe change gears from the transformational aspects to the commercial aspects. After those two years and, you know, a waiting list of 30 prepaid people, is that when you started to go, hmm, maybe there's a different model here where I can help more people? <laughs> how, did that, how did that intersect? My husband and I went to Brighton Bars for breakfast and I said, I can no longer maintain this. I was coaching all day, every day. Mm, that's a lot. And, and to be able to give 100% and be completely present and to serve and never have a moment where you fall out of phase with that client, I knew I wasn't going to maintain it. And uh, JP said, it's time to stop going to the mountains. It's time to be the mountain. 
and have them come to you. And that was it. The coaching school started. The coaching institute started in 2004. We were a registered training organization that same year with the first ever diploma of life coaching ever in the world. Uh, My first intake was filled in the first two months. We calculated we'd do up to a quarter of a million a year. And I think in our first full year, we did over a million dollars in with no internet advertising, and there was no (laughs) Google ads then. It was newspaper ads and it was an, uh, a website and word of mouth. Yeah, wow. And that transformation was the realization, as long as I'm the practitioner coach, I will sell time for money at an hourly mm. rate. The moment I switch from practitioner coach to teacher coach, that's the millionaire space is not what you do. It's who, how many you can teach what you do to so they can do it. Mm. That's, that's the millionaire model in our space. Who are you teaching so they can do what you do versus who are you coaching? Because mm. who you're coaching is all individual. It can never be recorded quite rightly. It's personal. It's bespoke. The moment it's bespoke, it's a limited business model. So I moved the model to one to many. And then the biggest transformation happened a year after that. I think you and I have spoken about this way back in San Francisco when I said, I began the business for joy, learning, and meeting people. I'm doing all of that. But now I realize the business has to be a vehicle to create the income that I can invest in assets that produce an income. Do you remember that conversation? I do. do. Yep. So it's the shift from my asset, the coaching institute's earning me income. The next, that phase is so important. It's now the coaching institute asset earns me an income that I invest in an asset that is not dependent upon me. And that earns me the income. And that's how I'm wealthy today. Not because I make money from TCI, but because I invested the money I made from TCI in other business vehicles and other assets, and they are income producing. There's a lot of people that have tried to transition from um, being a practitioner coach to a teacher coach and to try and do it at scale. Um, And in the last 20 years, I've lost count of how many people that have tried it, but have also crashed and burned. And I'd probably go as far as to say, you know, the crash and, you know, the, the, the cemetery is filled with the 99 point, probably 99.9 percentile of those people. And it's not to say that they didn't go back to being great, you know, uh, practitioner coaches, but it's very rare, you know, and I'm speaking from my own experience here, you know, in a, in a, in a slightly different industry, it's very rare to be able to scale to the levels that you've been able to do, you know, creating multi, you know, eight figure business in a, in an environment where most, um, teacher coaches, you know, struggle to create even seven figures. What do you think was one of the distinguishing features apart from the fact, you know, you've got this wealth of experience, this incredible mind, you know, and this, I guess you could say this life that draws upon a level of experience that few coaches can probably use what do you think was the distinguishing factor and i know that this is one of those scenarios you're gonna okay i was gonna say it's probably more than one <laughs> so can we're on the same page can uh, i buy a vowel and can i speak to a friend i'm gonna have to go three uh the first, i was talking about this last night with a wonderful group of coaches the first is the uh willingness to move your name out of the business i was very willing to surrender my name me as a brand my face easiest decision I could make was to become invisible in the business except as strategy and as creating content. 
that was replicable. So number one, I'm really, I can only speak from my experience. It's really helped me to make that transition from a million to 10 million plus was let go of my need to see me anywhere. That, that's been tremendously helpful. As long as I had to stay the star, I was going to stay in seven figures. The second was do it once, enjoy it. Do it twice, you're full. That's my bit. That's my rule in business. I'll do it one for. I'll do it once because I love it and it's joyful and it's creative and it's adventurous. Love it. But if I do the same thing twice as talent, full, absolute full. I've now no longer going to make that an asset. I've now made that reliant on me. So if I do a training, if I run a class, they have to be recorded, probably from three angles. They have to be repurposed. They have to be transcribed. Facilitator notes need to be created from them. And the next facilitator that's coming along needs to be able to learn how to replicate that. So I learned that golden, those two rules in my first two years in the coaching institute. I'll do it once for fun, but the second time, now I'm doing it as a full. I must be able to replicate it and remove myself from the entire process except for the creativity, which I love and which is my song. So I, I've got, there's basically for Bushka dollar programs. I'm, I'm sure your viewers are familiar with this. There's the baby program, the next one, the next one, the next one. They go up in ascension. I started with the baby one. All of that got transcribed and repurposed. I then trained personally the facilitators on how to run them. I then trained a facilitator trainer on how to train these facilitators. I then let go of certificate four of life coaching. Then I did the same for the next one, the next one, and the next one. So if I didn't reverse engineer, I was failing as a business owner. And that's been my rule since 2000, late 2005. If I'm not reverse engineering, if I'm not backfilling everything I'm creating, I'm creating a rod for my own back in a year's time because now I'm having to run every single training everywhere. <laughs> I'm having to remember everything that was said. I'm going to have to refer to all of my notes and somehow I'm out. I, I can't do that and grow to eight figures, Kerwin. Mm. I can do it and stay in seven, but I can't move to eight. So that was the second rule. And the third was, I wish more people would listen to this. Have a unique system that works that isn't reliant upon your magic talent. Have a system that is replicable, transferable, filled with meaning for the next person who picks it up and runs with it and they can succeed with it. That's literally the antithesis of coaching. I'm in a coaching session. I'm present to the person. It's bespoke. It's tailor-made. What you say will be what I respond to. That is not at all ever going to become a system. Step back and look for the patterns in it, document that, and now I have a coaching model. And that's what we sell. We don't sell my magic. We don't sell my talent. We don't sell my experience or my expertise. We sell how I systemized those those characteristics mm. of me. We sell the system, not me. And that one step removed means the business is scalable. And I think we're now in 90 something countries rather than reliant upon what I can bring to that moment. And in the process, you've obviously had to do what 
I would say traditional businesses do when you scale. You've had to hire talent. You've had to bring on people. You've had to learn the dynamics that are involved in scaling a business. And I'm going to assume that there's some distinguishing features between being a good coach and being a good leader, you know, in yeah. business and being in the business context. Well, I'm actually, no, I want to pose that more as a question. Is yeah. there a distinction, you know, when you're scaling a business between being a good coach and being a good leader when it comes to, you know, the process of scale? Yeah. So one of the books I recommend is the one minute manager. I think it is. Uh, it's the book where it says some of, some people are coachable and some people just need to be told. <laughs> so coaching, I think, is really only about 20% of what leadership is. There's also some people who just need to be sat down and show the owner's manual. You're not going to coach them on what the manual could be. But what do you think would be in the manual? We don't have time. and it's just <laughs> So some people, you're going to show the owner's manual. Some people are going to be able to learn from the manual and apply it. Some people are going to be able to apply it and improve it. And some people will be able to use the manual, improve it, and teach others how to do that. And then others, you could say, how would you go about creating this manual? They're the coachable people. Not everybody falls on the scales on the spectrum of being highly coachable all the time. Mm. Some people, you need to hit the stop button. Some people, it needs to be a redirect. Some people, it needs to be a training moment, a showing moment, a repeating moment. So all those flavors need to come into effective leadership. And I know this from experience, Kerwin, because my first five attempts to hire someone went running out the door. <laughs> Can't, I, don't know, I don't know what you're talking about, Sharon. I've never experienced anything even close to that. I'm not going through it at all. <laughs> I kept trying to coach them and they couldn't stand it. And they just left. One lady left so rapidly. She left behind her high heels. She just wanted to get. <laughs> and in Melbourne, that's a big deal, ladies and gentlemen. That's not a small feat. <laughs> <sighs> that's gold. One of the things that you're renowned for so much so that I've actually taken my um, K2 elite clients to your, um, into your business on, uh, I think two occasions now where we've done tours of your business. And I know you've been inspired by many giants before you, you know, one of the great giants that you and I have both been inspired by is Tony Shea. May he rest in yep. peace. Um, you know, who is one of the, uh, early co-founders or funders of, um, the business, uh, Zappos, which was acquired by uh, Amazon for 1.8 billion, and it is renowned to this day as one of the most customer-centric businesses or customer-centric business models on the planet. And like you, I've been to Zappos and I've toured Zappos and I've had their, their big cultural show. And, and I've also toured your business and I've taken my clients into your business, you know, to yeah. really look at, you know, some really distinguishing features around what makes a strong culture. And, you know, I've been doing this for long enough now to understand one of the key ingredients and, in you know, and I, I would assume if there was a fourth thing and I don't want to assume anything, but that you would suggest culture, you know, is a big part of that process of being able to scale because without a strong culture, you know, it's going to be very hard for you to coordinate or, or to be able to motivate people en masse. What has been, first of all, to you, what is a culture? And as a follow-up question to that, what are some of the things that you have done to create an incredibly unique culture but at the same time understanding, and I hope you don't mind me bringing this in here because I know you're a, you're a big personality. Very much like me, you, when you enter the room, it's almost like you bring a tribe of, you know, 20, 20 energies with you. And, and, and with that, that can be a, an incredible asset to a culture because some people can find that very inspiring. But on the flip side of that, you know, there are a lot of people can find that very confronting, you know, very intimidating, very challenging. So I know I've kind of laid a few things in here, but I'll, I'll, I'll bring it yes. back to the beginning. And I'll say, first of all, to you, what is a culture? And then we'll, we'll, we'll segue from there. 
Yeah, there's plenty to unpack there. Yes to everything you said. So I believe everything that is strategic occurs within a context of thinking. Culture to me is how you think. It's how you're prepared to think. So overarching everything you do strategically is what you're prepared to think about, what you're prepared to believe in, what you're prepared to value, what you're prepared to care about, fight for, protect, defend, and create. Nothing strategic can happen unless it is is contained within this massive ethos of those qualities. And any strategy is going to be poor if that is poor. No strategy can be effective if the thinking is ineffective. I say to my students all the time, in the hands of a mind that won't think, no tool is good enough. In the hands of a mind that's willing to think, any tool will do. I love that. And I believe that's true for business. Culture is everything. The Coaching Institute is absolutely built on a culture that is around our vision, live your dream, and our 10 core values. They've been there since 2012. We hire on our values. We fire on our values. We performance review every 90 days on our values. Every single day, people are given feedback according to the values. And every week, everybody in the company sets their top fives based on the top five values they need to cultivate within themselves. It is our ethos. It's how we breathe. It's what matters. If you do great and you don't live the values, you did not do great because it is not enough to get the job done and be all, I'm going to, you know, no matter what, I'm going to get it. It's we're going to do this. I'm going to bring our whole team with us because we all know we can face the same direction if we bring these values with us. If anyone's not on board for the values, please leave. You are hurting yourself. Be in a company that is a match for your values. Don't be in a place where it's not a match for your values because our values work. We're not shifting them. We're not diluting them. We're not changing them because someone else thinks it would be better if it wasn't like that. And we're never going to stop caring about it. And so that fierceness you're hearing in me is how we want everyone to be. That's the culture. It's care this much about this and we'll get there. Don't care about these values. We might get there, but we're not going to love ourselves. And so to you, what are some of the things that you have outside of getting very clear on those 10 values, very clear on that vision as a leader, how have you established, and let me, I want to make this question as practical as possible. How did you establish what that was going to be prior to having Let's say, you know, 30 people show, on your, show up on your doorstep wanting to work for you. Uh, part of it was making every mistake possible in terms of hiring poorly and hiring okay. because I thought they'd be great at the job and realizing all they cared about was themselves. So hiring uh, narcissistic personality types, I'm not saying disorders, I'm just saying a narcissistic type who was only interested in what was in it for them. It was hiring people who just wanted to do the job and didn't um, elevated to a calling. It was hiring people who saw working with us as a stepping stone to something bigger and better mm-hmm. rather than the place they'd want to be. It was hiring for convenience instead of it's a great fit. It was hiring because they looked good in an interview, but we didn't dig deeper. Is making all of those mistakes, and I'm not saying we've stopped, but we've got a lot better at it. Uh, one of the best things I ever did, I you were speaking about having a big personality and being intimidating. Yes, that's where I was going I, next. Yeah, because I I think that's actually been hugely advantageous for us. Uh, I used to be used 
and I mean that in the most positive way, someone they our team thought they would hire, they'd say, could you come and spend 10 minutes with them? That's all it took. I have the ability to, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so many segues from here. But so I'll many ways that can be interpreted right now. Yeah. I look forward to all the bad comments about that one. But 10 minutes with me when I'm looking for how big a gap they have between who they think they are and who they really are. So I always think about hiring in terms of cognitive dissonance, who they're trying to appear to be versus who they truly are. The bigger that gap, the harder it is for them to hold it together if they're hired by a high-performing company. Mm. So if someone is trying to act like they're perfect and they're trying to maintain living the values and this strain and this energy being poured into it, the moment they face adversity, the moment they face it's tougher than they think they are, the moment they face a challenge that feels bigger than they are, this face crumbles and the truth will appear. Mm. One of my strengths is the ability to help someone face that maybe a little quicker than they were wanting. And I do it respectfully and I do it gently. All you need to do is have a chat with someone and point out an inconsistency in what they've said. And that's when you find the floodgates, floodgates of ego open up Mm-hmm. or their true authentic self appear point out the cognitive dissonance just a small moment of inconsistency and if this is a big gap they will get defensive shut down hostile upset rejecting whatever they'll do their thing because they, they have never they don't have awareness around this gap and more power to them they don't have to but if you're going to work with us you do others you pointed out, I might say, hey, I just noticed earlier you said blah. It seems a little inconsistent or incongruent with what you shared earlier about blah. Can you walk me through that, please? That's how I put it, Cohen. It's like beautiful the least. Question. It's just beautifully yeah, gently yeah, put. Gentle. But it's enough for this, for the person who's got too much of I'm trying to hold it together here versus a natural state. But the natural state will go, that's a great point. Thank you. Or huh, I hadn't looked at it that way. Or, yeah, you're right. That is an inconsistency. I'll have to think about it. The person who's naturally comfortable with the truer selves will ride with it. Oh, I love that. But the that. person living in, the co- in this gap, this cognitive distance, will feel stress. They'll feel anxiety at feeling exposed. They will feel I've been blunt and aggressive. They will feel that I've been way too upfront for a first conversation. Because their ego defense cannot tolerate the inconsistency that's been reflected back to them. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I've had conversations um, with team members before with similar threads. Um, and I've actually been approached afterwards by team members who have said, hey, listen, I, I found you really aggressive in that conversation yeah. yesterday. And, you know, I'm, I'm very much like you, you know, I, I like to take a lot of responsibility, but I'm also have a level of self-awareness. It gives me a perspective bigger than just one person's. And I don't mean that arrogantly, but what I've found interesting is this happened on at least half a dozen occasions where someone's come in and said, Hey, listen, I didn't appreciate, you know, that meeting yesterday. I found, I didn't appreciate, you know, I found you aggressive or confronting or, you know, even a little bit bullying. And, you know, in every one of those situations, my first scenario, my first response has been, Oh my God, I am so sorry. But in every scenario, I've, and I guess I'm a little lucky because I have a guy following me around with a video camera. Yeah, he and does. I have, what, I have what's called the video ref. <laughs> and so I've actually on all six occasions had to go back to the video, watch the video, and then brought the individual in and said, okay, I want you to watch the meeting again. And then I want you to point out where the aggression is. I want you to point out where the bullying is. Yeah. And in every single one of those scenarios, they've 
fail to be able to do it because there's nothing there. So what is it that you think, um, how is it that we can frame, or is this, is this a a total, uh, responsibility bypass here? How is it as leaders, do we ensure that when we communicate to our team that we aren't perceived, you know, as aggressive, that we aren't perceived as a bully, or is it important for us to, you know, do things in a way that provoke a response that gives us the insight into who they are versus yes. us trying to change ourselves. Number two. Number two. Do the 10 minute one that I just shared. I love that. I, I think that should be done in every interview, but also every first yep. date. Every first date. I would- yes. <laughs> I, uh, I can pretty much guarantee you if I was single, I'd only have first dates if I did that. But anyway. I have a lot of first dates. <laughs> a lot of first dates. That. 50 first dates. <laughs> I Sharon, believe do it in the interview and yeah. I believe do it in the first day of their trial yes, to give okay. them the gift of gracefully opting out because the gap's too great and we are not here to help them close that gap. That's their job. Yeah, And that's I the think. biggest gift you can give somebody is to gracefully let them recognize that in this space, that gap needs to close. Sharon, there are so many conversations I want to have with you right now, and which is exciting me because I think that you and I could do a little series on the podcast. So I think we're going to yes. have to sit down and do this again. That'd be amazing. It would be amazing. But there's one question I want to finish with, and it might seem a little bit um, like a clunky left field, but you know, you're someone who you know we've known each other for over a decade now. You're someone that I admire greatly. You know, you're someone. There's not many people that I allow Thank inside you. my head. Um, and you're one of the people that I have allowed inside my head, you know, openly you. and willingly. And I know I so say fine. that, but I, and to me, you know, this might sound like a throwaway remark to anyone who's listening right now, but for me, I'm someone that I am very cautious about, you know, who I let inside my head because of the implications for that, you know? Yeah. And I think there are a lot of people that let others inside their head, but they are not necessarily letting the right person in there. Anyway, this is a, a roundabout way of saying, I love you a lot. I think you're amazing. But one of the things that I admire about you is your ability to be able to behave contingently and pivot quickly in a range of scenarios. And I think the most obvious one to go to would be Corona, but I'm not going to go to Corona. Uh, and I hope you don't mind me going where I am and I, you, you can pull me up if you want to. But I loved when you pivoted from NLP to metadynamics. Yes. Um, and I know there's a little bit of, you know, a little bit of sensitivity around that, but I, I, I just want to point out, I find it remarkable that you were able to redefine an entire segment of coaching purely yes. because you could, but do you want to maybe give us a little bit of a, not so much the context of necessarily how it happened, but what you did to completely revolutionize an entire industry that up until that point had been limited by one modality. And by one modality, NLP is multiple modalities. I'm aware of that. It is. Yeah. Um, but you really did come in and you kind of wiped the slate clean and you created a new range of modalities that, you know, arguably could even be more effective than the original modalities that came before them. How did that happen? And what and how the fuck did you do it? I think is probably the, because it's a big thing. You know, you're not it's just recreating thing. a program. You're recreating an entire therapeutic coaching, you know, process. Um, walk us through that. I will, we, to do that, Kerwin, so viewers can have a sense of the gravity and, the, and how big that decision was. It was a $4 million profit line per year that I walked away from in one day. Okay, that's that's a, how big frame. a decision was. That's a fair chunk to walk away from in one day. 
So I need to give credit to Reese and Trout, the 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing. And one of their rules is if you can't dominate the market, create your own market if it's crowded. So that all held 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing. So if you can't be first, be second in the underdog. If you are first and the market is too cluttered, just create your own pie. So that's what the number one thinking that stayed with me all the time. Uh, is the pie getting too crowded? The second thing I started to notice was the pie is not cluttered with great quality. People were able to say they were trained in NLP having done a weekend course or, yeah, I know NLP because they read a chapter of a book. And that is not to discredit anybody who's done that, more power to you. But if you phone up and you want to invest with us and it's $3,000 to $12,000 investment compared to somebody saying you can get it for free in a weekend, that's a tough marketing conversation that I could not be bothered having. Also, NLP is unregulated and anyone can say they're an NLP practitioner. So if we produced an NLP practitioner, we were sending them into a diluted market that broke all of 22 immutable laws of marketing. It broke all of them. So that made no sense. How was I taking care of our students and our graduates? So then due to a couple of other things that happened, it just became so obvious. Me co-branding with an uncontrolled brand is hurting my brand. It makes no sense to co-brand when the values are not aligned, when the ethos is not one of forgiveness and grace and meaning and inclusion. It made no sense to stay in that space. So what are you going to do now? <laughs> Create Great, your own you're away. What are you now going to do? So then it became obvious the one of the first rules of recent trout, if the market is crowded, you can't be first or second. I think at that stage in Australia, we were first. Create your own space. And I've been playing with this idea of dynamics. I love that sense of dynamics of adaptability and flexibility. And proactivity, that's what's implied in that word. But Cohen, the word I truly love is meta. Mm. The meta frame is the frame that sits above every other frame. It's the helicopter view. It's the third person position that sees all. So meta had to be in the brand. So the name was easy. Then, as you know, I'd been working on uh, the critical alignment model for around five, 10 years, probably seven years about then. Yeah. Someone may correct me in the chat. I can't remember. About seven years, the uh, critical alignment model, which you guys are familiar with, which is ESIP, environment, structure, implementation, and people. People love that. It gives a structured way of thinking and creating a profound ethos. So I built the programs around the critical alignment model and within two weeks had rebranded, relaunched, and took a very small hit in the next year in terms of profit in MetaDynamics. And you crushed it. And I remember watching you at the time, talking to you at the time as you were going through this, because I know there was a lot going on. Yes. And um, yeah, I just want to say a massive congratulations for what you did and what you've been able to do, you know, because again, walking away from $4 million in profit, I think anyone would agree that's probably going to be, you know, a challenging proposition, but to do it with such grace uh, and confidence and, you know, success on the back end, I, yeah, it's just, it really does represent so much of who you are. 
Sharon, as I said um, only a few moments ago, I think this is going to be podcast number one <laughs> of Unstoppable <laughs> with Sharon Pearson. I think we've got a few more podcasts in the, uh, that we, you and I have to record. But um, yeah, just to wrap up, what's the one piece of advice? Now, again, I, I'm one of these people, I hate that question when people ask me. Because it's like, fucking hell, man, one, just one, what's the problem? Like, give me the problem and I'll give you the advice. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's a very general question, but I find it can produce a whole range of really interesting responses depending on who I ask. But if there's one piece of advice that you've received in your life that has had probably one of the most profound impacts on where you are today, what was that piece of advice? Listen to people who have done it and give a shit and don't listen to anyone else. Oh, I like that. There's a quote card right there. Mm. <laughs> Knock yourself out. I think we should put that into a quote card. Yeah. Sharon Pearson, um, where can people find you? They can go to the Coaching Institute. They can go to Sharon Pearson. Go yeah, for it. I've got a podcast now myself called Perspectives. Uh, I don't talk about this stuff, though. We we go everywhere with that, Koo. And it's just I do the Perspectives podcast because I love it and I love shockingly having opinions and talking so <laughs> <laughs> one of your superhuman skills fantastic well, we'll put a whole bunch of links below for your podcast uh website socials and everything else but again i just want to take the opportunity one more time Sharon, thank, to say you, thank you not just for being on the podcast but just for being a friend you know and for being um you know a participant being a passenger being a leader uh, and a conductor and someone who's, um, you know, had an impact on my life. So thank you so much. And I get an opportunity right now, please don't edit this out, even though we're over time, to thank you for all the support you gave me in that year. That was 2013. That's how I know oh, we've no. known each other since 2011. You had my back all year. You were amazing. You were one of my biggest champions. Mm. And to have this opportunity to thank you publicly is such oh, a gift for me. I stand on the you. shoulders of everybody who precedes me and you're one of those. So thank you. Sharon, it's an honor and a real pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Sharon The Spoon Pearson on Unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business, but we do it from an immersive, but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way and we're looking at five key areas we're looking at your psychology we're looking at your marketing your sales your leadership and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly so if you'd like to find out more information kerwinray.com